TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Good morning. It is Sunday, July 2nd, 2023. I'm your host, Blois Olson. This is what we call the Sunday Take. A holiday weekend where hopefully you're enjoying a cup of coffee or however you listen to the show. You're relaxed. You're with family. And if you're working, thank you. Uh, totally respect people who have to work on these holiday weekends. I've decided that uh, I'm even going to work today at Taste of Minnesota. They're a client of our firm, Fluence and Fluence Advisory. So uh, if you're out there, take a look, look for me, say hi. Uh, But, you know, look, whenever we get to the mid-year point, uh, there's news. um, And, A year later, we have more Supreme Court cases. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk to Jahalde from University of Minnesota. We're going to talk to Dennis Olson from the Office of Higher Ed. And then, of course, there's always the take. We'll be back in a minute with Office of Higher Ed Commissioner Dennis Olson to talk about the rulings this week from the Supreme Court and what they mean for higher ed in Minnesota. I'm your host, Blois Olson. Thanks for listening to Sunday Take. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. My first guest this week is Dennis Olson. He's the commissioner of the Office of Higher Ed. And despite popular rumor, uh, I'm not having him on the phone or on the uh, show this week just because he's an Olson, but we Olsons <laughs> have to stick together. So, Commissioner, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Blaze. Hey, uh, obviously, two big rulings impacting higher ed this week. You came out with statements, you've talked about it. Let's just start first and foremost with ruling around affirmative action that came out earlier this week and higher ed and where Minnesota sits, how Minnesota deals with this. And are the impacts something people are going to feel immediately? Or do you think our higher ed institutions are going to find other ways to meet their goals? Yeah, you know, I'll just start off by saying, um, you know, it was a pretty disappointing outcome. Uh, but, you know, I think as you've seen from from other statements that have been released, in addition to the the one you referenced released from uh, from myself and in, in the Office of Higher Education, you know, colleges and universities have been anticipating this really since the question was was brought before the Supreme Court. And, you know, I think the the ruling yesterday to overturn affirmative action um, in admissions doesn't really change, uh, you know, much in Minnesota in terms of the commitment to serving all students. Um, you know, I really appreciated uh, leadership from the University of Minnesota uh, Minnesota states, you know, really doubling down to to make sure that that commitment remains to serve students, uh, you know, from from underserved uh, communities, uh, from historically marginalized communities, and so you know we we look forward to to continuing that here in Minnesota. 
um, you know, the, the decision itself impacts college campuses most directly. And, you know, we at the Office of Higher Education don't set admission criteria or directly admit students. And so, you know, we'll be a, a, th a thought partner and a supportive agency in, in terms of anything we can do to reiterate and help disseminate guidance that may come uh, following here from the, from the U.S. Department of Education or the White House. Uh, let's just stay on that topic for one more question. Uh, is the is one of the challenges to admit or um, provide access to traditionally underrepresented groups? Does it is that this is part of a spectrum issue? Am I or or, or is is admission? Um, you know, what I'm saying is there's a lot of steps before they, you know, apply to higher ed uh, in the educational spectrum. And do you think of that whole spectrum when, you know, trying to get them ready for higher ed as a state? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think you're, you're getting at, uh, you know, really what folks are trying to unpack as they, they read the decision in the entirety, uh, you know, and try to better understand what it all means. Uh, yes, you know, race was, was one of a multitude of different factors uh, that were considered by selective institutions in particular uh, for consideration for, for admission. And, you know, it is, it is just one of many, uh, but, you know, colleges ultimately uh, pull together a, a qualified pool of students, which then they make admis admission decisions around, um, you know, and so when we, when we talk about getting students ready, it's getting them uh, ready early with, you know, with a college-going uh, culture, a, a college-going knowledge base, and that includes, of course, you know, uh, watching closely your, your academic performance, keeping an eye on uh, courses that may be relevant to potential career opportunities or, you know, a direction you want to take uh, down the road, uh, you know, also paying attention to community service and, and volunteer experiences, and so there's a whole host of different factors that that colleges consider in the admission process. And yeah, that, that's just one of them. And so, you know, we want to make sure as, as students are, uh, you know, embarking on that journey for, for college application, we want, we want them to be really the, the most well-educated consumer they can be to, to be asking all the right questions and understanding all that it takes to be considered for admission. My guest is Dennis Olson. He's the commissioner of higher ed here in Minnesota, the office of higher ed. The other big ruling came late Friday, later Friday, and, had to do with the uh, intent to uh, cancel student debt and use the pandemic and some of the emergency powers around the pan pandemic to do that. Where does this does this you know impact Minnesota? Uh, does does are there other ways in which Minnesota Minnesota is helping people deal with college debt right now? Yeah, I would say you know first and foremost uh, the the ruling uh, Friday certainly. Uh, was again a, a disappointing outcome. I would say, uh, you know, really kind of two days in a row with with significant higher ed uh, impact from the court. Uh, this one though is especially difficult because it does impact, uh, you know, individual Minnesotans and and I guess Minnesota's economy overall. Uh, you know, Minnesota's would have Minnesotans would have would have benefited significantly from this. Um, you know, as well as the the local and state economy. Uh, when the original numbers were put together, you know, it was close to 730,000 Minnesotans that were uh, estimated to be eligible for uh, some some type of federal relief under this proposal. And, you know, about 500 plus thousand of them were actually 
eligible for the larger uh, relief amount because they were uh, Pell Grant recipients uh, at the time of borrowing. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about a significant number of Minnesotans that would have would have benefited. And it's especially difficult because this, of course, comes now uh, shortly before uh, the pandemic era, the pause on, on student loan payments uh, is set to resume here coming up October 1st. As we wrap here, you think about the payments, you think about access, uh, declining enrollment, population driven. Uh, how well is Minnesota positioned against the rest of the country to kind of, uh, I don't know, come out on the other side of some of these challenges in higher education in five to 10 years and why are we positioned the way we are? Yeah, I would say, you know, we start from a really good place here in Minnesota, actually. We have uh, the benefit of being uh, number two in the nation for overall higher educational attainment and actually really appreciate the foresight of the legislature and leadership at the time in 2015 in setting a 10-year goal for the state uh, to have 70% of Minnesota adults age 25 to 44 attain some sort of post-secondary credential or degree uh, beyond high school. And we're actually really close to meeting that goal by 2025. Uh, but we also, you know, in unpacking the data um, and through the, the data that's provided by measuring attainment, we can see that we also have some of the, the largest nation leading gaps uh, when you consider race and ethnicity. And so, you know, that, that tells us at the Office of Higher Education that helps inform our legislative proposals and conversations with the legislature about enrollment and about affordability that we need, you know, comprehensive and aggressive financial aid programs uh, to help, you know, students navigate through uh, and make sure that they, they come out with little to no debt. But that also means targeted financial aid as well. And so, you know, really appreciative of, of the governor, uh, lieutenant governor and the legislature this year for, for putting forth some, some pretty aggressive proposals related to targeted financial aid. Uh, and we're excited to now work on, on implementation here coming around uh, uh, in the next couple of days and going forward. Last question before we wrap, are there going to need to be some adjustments just in overhead and costs with declining enrollment? We're down almost 100,000 students over the last decade, where I know it's tough to close campuses, but our two big systems here are, are facing some some demographic and just some, you know, kind of customer bases that that aren't there in numbers. You think there's a correction coming in the next couple of years in Minnesota? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, one that we've been tackling for the last couple of years, one that we certainly, uh, you know, knew was on the horizon in terms of a, of a demographic cliff and a, a drop in enrollment. Uh, it's one that both of our systems have been preparing for um, and, you know, actually making significant reductions over the last few years. Um, those conversations will certainly continue. Uh, I don't really, you know, know what that means into the future other than uh, planning is absolutely necessary. Uh, but what I will say is, you know, we've seen direct impact on students too, uh, you know, just because there are potentially fewer students in a program doesn't necessarily mean that that program isn't important, right. um, you know, and important for our overall uh, economic vitality in the state, you know, for our, for our workforce meeting our workforce needs. And so, um, you know, it's it's tough too to see some of these campuses have to make really difficult decisions around uh, important academic and professional programs that you know we know ultimately Minnesota is going to need uh, professionals and, and workers for. And so, you know, we hope that that those conversations continue. But uh, more to be seen at this point. Uh, I just really am am happy that for now, 
you know, we are we are well resourced and putting ourselves in a position to you know weather any potential uh, storm that may maybe yet to come here in terms of, of further declining enrollment. Dennis Olson, uh, thanks for joining me. I hope you have a great 4th of July. Yeah, you as well. Thanks, boys. When we come back, Jill Hasday on the week that was the court and these big headlines that seem to come out the week before the 4th of July every year. I'm Blaise Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on Newstalk 830 WCCO. It's that time of year again when the Supreme Court is making news uh, and landmark big decisions that have both legal connotations and impacts, but also get caught up in politics. And so my guest is Jill Haste. She's a professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. She joins me now on Sunday Tech. Jill, great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Um, well, let's just start with kind of the makeup of the court. There's been much about it. We've had this discussion for years since the Dobbs decision, but this year it just seemed as though the court had more cases that felt political or got talked about in the political, you know, dialogue, debate, and division in this country. Sum up kind of the what this court, some of the cases they chose to take, and um, and we can go into the individual cases. But I want to I want to just start by kind of set the tone for when you saw this court come together and the and the cases they took. What what was it that stood out? I think two things are happening at once. First, it is what some people call a you, you only live once court, YOLO court, that has the votes and is seeking to decide what it can while the getting's good. I think also, though, since the overturning of Roe in the Dobbs case last year, there's extraordinary levels of public interest in the court. So it's even a bigger story than it has been. And it reaches more people than maybe would ordinarily follow Supreme Court news. And I think those things are happening at the same time. So for instance, public approval of the court has dropped about 20 percentage points over the last two years. A lot of that is the overturning of Roe, obviously. And also, I mean, not to be too cynical, but I think generally public approval of the Supreme Court often rested on people knowing very little about what the court was actually doing in the specifics. The more you find out, the more there's an opportunity for disapproval. I I would align with that thinking that um, the court has traditionally historically been something that they if if they're kind of minding the the court you don't hear a lot about it that landmark big headline making decisions are maybe once a year maybe even once every two years but now since dobbs we've got a series of them is there anything uh as you study the the cases they took this year that this yolo court by the way i like that term just because it makes the law more uh relatable. Uh, is there is there anything about the cases they took in particular that you think shows that they recognize as justices, maybe that th- this is a once in a uh, lifetime opportunity for that, for these cases? Well, I mean, we could just talk about what was decided yesterday. Uh, there's been a conservative opposition to affirmative action virtually since it start, started in the late 60s and early 70s. 
And uh, they pushed a series of arguments that, you know, to be frank, the Supreme Court has always been pretty sympathetic to, but I think they saw an opportunity to get rid of uh, racial preferences. It's a little, the case is a little uh, complicated, but to really um, uh, undermine affirmative action in a very uh, uh, significant way. And they seized it. I talked to somebody else um, yesterday who said that the affirmative action case brings some alignment back to affirmative action or race and hiring decisions, uh, admittance decisions, that it aligns business law with uh, maybe the higher ed rules or law, things like that. Any sense into that or any idea why this particular case after several have, you know, challenged affirmative action over the years, several, why this one broke through? Okay, so there's a few pieces in that. So since the 80s, the court has said repeatedly that it's going to apply the same constitutional scrutiny to affirmative action that takes race into account that would apply to a Jim Crow law that explicitly segregates water fountains by race. Yeah, It's called strict scrutiny. It's very hard to survive. And for many years, none of the affirmative action programs the court looked at through the 80s and 90s did survive. For instance, they struck down federal contractor set-asides and state uh, contracting uh, affirmative action programs. But then in Grutter, the court, which is a 2003 case where the court upheld affirmative action uh, admissions at the University of Michigan Law School, it finally found an aversion of affirmative action that it thought survived strict scrutiny. Sorry. No problem. Yeah. The court's theory, though, was always to go to that business uh, part of the question. The court's theory was was really specifically targeted to higher education as opposed to employment. Namely, that there was a compelling government interest in promoting diversity in pu- public higher education and that you could have affirmative action that took race into account as long as it was narrowly tailored, meaning that you didn't only get a plus for being in an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. You could also get a plus for being an athlete or um, being ideologically diverse or being from a part of the state where they didn't take a lot of kids. You know, there's all these pluses going out. Every yeah. spot is open to everyone. There's all these pluses. That was basically the Grutter theory. Yesterday, the court didn't officially overrule Grutter, which I think is a reaction to the pushback after the overruling of Dobbs. You know, they don't like the Dobbs case just announces completely wrong. We're overruling it. And Roberts, who's definitely Chief Justice Roberts, who's definitely a more measured writer than Samuel Alito, who is in full throttle. (laughs) um, He doesn't say he's overruling Gruder, but he fundamentally undermines it. He basically, he doesn't say um, diversity is in a compelling government interest, but instead he says all the components of diversity, like promoting opportunities and role modeling and all this stuff are just not measurable by a court. We just can't adjudicate it. And then he says the program isn't narrowly tailored because it doesn't have a realistic endpoint and we don't know when it would end and it's not constitutionally appropriate to keep going until, in general, elite education is fairly matched with with the racial composition of the population as a whole. Um, So 
one of the so one of the questions after this case is how far does it extend? I think it's fair to say that this majority in general is not sympathetic to affirmative action. So I don't see affirmative action in public employment, for instance, being on solid uh, footing. Interestingly, there is a footnote in the case where they specifically say it's possible affirmative action would be constitutionally permissible in the, for the military academies like West Point, but they don't quite explain why that would be. Okay. Um, we could spend an hour on each of these big cases from this week, but we, we only have a few minutes. So I want to kind of shift here to um, the two cases that came up Friday uh, that one around, you know, the first amendment um, and someone's ability to decline uh, doing work, this case in a creative situation for uh, a gay couple wanting graphic design services. We had a case like this uh, in Minnesota around a bakery um, that, you know, does a business have to provide a service if they disagree with the uh, intentions of a same-sex couple? Um, Talk about the uniqueness of the First Amendment being used here uh, in a commerce case. Okay, so... The, right. The, this is a graphic designer. She hasn't yep. made websites before, but she's uh, wedding websites before, but she says, I plan to do wedding websites. I don't want to make them available to same sex couples because my religious beliefs are say that same sex couples shouldn't be getting married. Um, there were very similar claims in the middle of the 20th century from people who objected to interracial groups eating at their restaurant or um, women joining their business club, the JCs. And in that era, the court just rejected those kind of First Amendment claims. It said, you can't like gin up a First Amendment argument for getting rid of general anti-discrimination rules when you're a public accommodation, meaning an accommodation that's generally open to the public. Um, You know, like a business, anyone walks to the door, I'll sell to you. The key move the court makes in this case is it characterizes these wedding, these potential wedding websites as speech rather than conduct. And it says forcing her to do, saying that she asked if she wants to make wedding websites for anyone, she has to make it open to everyone, would be forcing her to make speech she doesn't believe in to say basically that she supports same-sex marriage when she doesn't. Um, and the dissent says, no, this is just conduct. You, you're not allowed to have a business that's generally open and dis- and and uh, discriminates against some people. I think the potential implications are enormous. So in this case, her claim was based on kind of a customized service. Each wedding website is a little different. And it was also specifically really about weddings. But what about another business? Like I have ice cream cones and I don't want people walking out with my ice cream cones if they're an interracial couple because I don't want them to think, I don't want people to think I think that's okay. so I think you could have enormous implications, especially because, as you said, it was decided as a speech case, meaning it didn't matter that the root of her claim was religious as opposed to just she doesn't think it's a good idea. That's the thing to me, because I am I'm kind of a purist on the First Amendment, but I think commerce has always had a different treatment by the court or by law and been allowed. And so this is essentially speech because her job is expression uh but uh but it's commerce related um 
it could have big implications in the reality of today's society. Um, this is one of those cases that I think makes good headlines, makes a lot of headlines, has a lot of legal interest. But for all pragmatic purposes, the, the how it plays out in society is probably not as impactful because we've kind of started to operate in our tribes all by ourselves. And, um, and there's this, you know, ability to kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, cancel or, or silently protest businesses that we don't agree with. Does that make this case kind of less impactful or we just have to wait and see? Um, I mean, I think there's different ways you could think about it. So what the dissent wanted the rule to be is that she had to make her service available, but she could include whatever speech she wanted. So like she could include Bible verses about marriage between a man and a woman. And from that perspective, like what's the difference? Obviously no same sex couple in their right mind is going to go to a wedding person, you know, a wedding for a wedding website. It's going to be covered with all this stuff that's against marriage. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, I think this case is an important signal that when the court faces conflicts between essentially, you know, religiously framed objections uh, to gay rights and civil rights law, um, it's going to side with the the, uh, conservative uh, religious claim. And that's probably not a good omen. I do think that, of course, the vast majority of businesses just want to sell to anyone who wants to buy from them and are not exactly. discriminating. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation, but it's also important um, what the Supreme court says the constitution requires. My guest is Jill Hastay. She's a professor at the university of Minnesota law. We're talking about the court as it wrapped up and uh, issued decisions this week. The final case that I want to talk about is this, you know, forgiveness of student debt. You work in a university. This is probably one of those things that gets talked about in the halls of higher ed. It certainly gets talked about out and about socially because everybody's impacted differently. It's also a case that I sensed that there's some checks and balances and some legislative authority that might be required. Uh, Talk about this case and what it means to executive power. Okay. So the governing statute authorized the Secretary of Education to waive or modify the rules. And the court's basic theory is that this loan forgiveness plan is too big to fall within the meaning of the words waive or modify. Okay. This case fits into this new idea the court's been developing lately called the major question doctrine. And the basic theory is that although even if in general the court should defer to how an agency interprets a statute, it shouldn't in a situation that has vast economic or political importance and instead should require this like clear statement from Congress specifically on point. Um, The arguments against are that I think there's a few. One is it gives the court too much power. You don't know what's a major question until the court tells you it is. How is Congress supposed to know every time, you know, what the court is late, you know, years down the road is going to think is a major question. It gives them too much power to pursue their own policy goals and to strike down programs they might not like on ideological grounds. 
Another objection is that it's very atextual. So every member of the conservative majority says they're a textualist, meaning they prioritize the text of the statute. And that's um, because Congress has the authority to pass laws. The court's only supposed to be interpreting them. The major questions doctrine is arguably really inconsistent with that. The statute says the Secretary of Education has the ability, has the power to waive or modify, and the court's essentially reading it as saying he has the power to waive or modify, unless it's a really big deal, and then he doesn't. And that's just not what the statute says. Um, so this is, I think, part of a more general conservative effort to roll back the power of administrative agencies. And it's extremely, has a, you know huge practical implications. I think there's over $400 billion in debt at stake. But it's really just one of what's going to be a, an, a continuing series of cases. You You say it's a major question case one major question that is out there politically is this idea of expanding the court what's the history of the court expanding the court and is there any you know history or legacy that says other than politics now would be the time to expand the court so the only constitutional protections the justices have is they have life tenure and salary protection meaning they can't be fired and their salaries can't be cut. Everything else is up to Congress and is a question of norms. You know, the fact they have air conditioning in a building and clerks, it's all up to norms. The number of justices has changed over time. There used to be six. Obviously, it's good to have an odd number. The most famous example of political discussion around expanding the court was um, FDR's proposed court packing plan in the Depression. Basically, uh, the Supreme Court in 1935-1936 struck down a series of New Deal statutes, arguing that they exceeded Congress's power. FDR, after winning a landslide election, proposes expanding the court so that for every justice, I think it was older than 70, they would put an additional justice, which would have resulted in 15, uh, Supreme, 15 members of the Supreme Court and not coincidentally given him a majority. In response, were well, this is controversial, but soon thereafter announcing it, the court switches and begins consistently upholding the New Deal plans. There's ongoing controversy over whether it was in response to the, um, this court packing plan. Recently, evidence has come out that the key justice named, coincidentally, Justice Roberts, but a different Roberts, changed his mind before the court packing plan was announced. On the other hand, maybe he changed his mind in part because he saw the increasing unpopularity of what the court was doing. In any event, the court switches. It's, it's called the switch in nine, the time that saves nine. There's only nine justices. And for many years, I, I taught and you know, law professors well before me taught that really expanding the court was not on the table politically. That most people thought like that had been that's a bad norm because yeah. there's always this threat then if you, the president and the Congress don't like what the court is doing, you can just like pack the, eventually it'll be like 150 people and they'll be in cubicles. Um, so I think it's so interesting to me that proposals to expand the court are back and it shows how widespread unhappiness with the court is. Yeah. And I don't think. So and which so these proposals, it's just a statute. So it's not, you don't have to bend the constitution, it's just a statute. Right. I don't think that they're gonna be these are gonna be passed 
you know, tomorrow. But I will say that one lesson of the court packing incident in the 30s is that even the threat to pack the court can have a disciplinary function. So I've never met Chief Justice Roberts. I don't know him personally, (laughs) but I'm 100% confident that he does not want to be the Chief Justice when the court expands. I think that's, I think that's a sharp point. Right. So for instance, he doesn't write the majority opinion in um, Dobbs overturning Roe. He, he, he doesn't like abortion rights, but he would have done it slowly over 10 years because he he didn't want that. He didn't want that kind of uh, backlash. So I think those proposals, um, I mean, I think it's important to have that discussion, even if in all likelihood that will not pass anytime soon. Yeah, no, I think that's the case. I think that the political dialogue, I also think the political repercussions of things that um, kind of bounce back with independence and may have a unintended political consequence also give people pause. But I, as I noted in my opening today uh, on the show, you know, one of the reactions from one of our senators here, Tina Smith, was expand the court to the uh the ruling this week. And, and that immediately obviously politicizes a ruling, not that it's not political anyways, but also raises the question and creates these things that uh, those who like to argue and battle on social media will keep pointing to and expanding the court is certainly one of them on both sides. So Jill Hasday, thanks for joining me this week on Sunday Take. Thanks for having me. When we come back this week's take, it's, could we just chill out for a while? I'm Blake Sulson. I'll be right back. Here comes the take. But first, the sustainability minute from Minnesota corn. Is it knee high by the 4th of July? Well, that corn you see as you travel the state isn't just for eating, isn't just for corn on the cob. It's for fuel. It's for cleaner fuel. And another week of Smoggy air from Canadian wildfires means that we can use all the clean air we can get. It's Minnesota corn farmers who hopefully are fueling your 4th of July road trip with E85 or another product that we're pumping all across the state. In fact, earlier this week, Secretary Tom Vilsack announced more infrastructure for cleaner fuels across the state. That's a good thing. It's a local product. You make it locally, you burn it locally, and it keeps the air clean. That's a win-win-win, a triple win. And it's sustainable. You can keep growing corn, you can keep cleaner air, you can keep cleaner fuel. It's a cycle that we should be behind, and Minnesota corn growers have invested, they've innovated, and they'll continue to do so for our environment and for future farmers. I'm Blaise Olson. That's Minnesota Corn Sustainable Minute. Look, the take isn't long this week. In fact, I don't want to really have an opinion on the 4th of July week. I want us all to just soak up family, soak up friends, relax. I know for me, it is the mid-year mark, and therefore, we're going to take the rest of the week off of the newsletters and of morning radio, and I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to recharge. I'm going to reinvigorate. And when I do that, I find that I'm less emotional. I'm less pointed because it's healthy. It's healthy to take a break. So let's take our breaks. 
Let's come back refreshed. It's been a busy year. Next year will be a crazy election year on the national level, and it will have plenty of coverage here in the local level. But I wish you and yours a happy fourth, a safe fourth. Check us out at the Taste of Minnesota today. They're a client, but I also want to just say that bringing people together is good. There'll be Democrats, Republicans. There'll be people of all races, colors, creeds, sexual orientation at the Taste of Minnesota. And guess what? That's what this country's about. That's what we fought for. And that's what I can relax about. I'm Lois Olson. Thanks for listening to Sunday Take. We'll be back next week on News Talk 830 WCCO. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.